When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We infiltrated a, a fairy tale, and now it's canon in the fairy tale forevermore. How, how, how does that happen? I mean, we had Jim Henson's team doing all the puppeteering, and I mean, just for the Falcor, there had to have been 20 people under the stage, like pulling cables and making lips move, and that was pretty remarkable, especially for the time. The author Dan Brown once said, so long as they speak your name, you shall never die. Well, I say, as long as they speak your character's name, you'll always be part of a never-ending story. I'm Michael Nathanson. Welcome to Playing Dead. When we're kids, death hits us differently. Now, it can be especially disquieting when we see another kid, someone like us, die on screen. Now, as hard as it was for us, we never really think about how difficult it must have been for that young actor. Today, we talk with former Tiger Beat Magazine heartthrobs Noah Hathaway from The NeverEnding Story and Dante Bosco from Hook. And to top it all off, we have Paula Rhodes, a voice actress who knows a thing or two about how to create the perfect <laughs> death knell. Are we recording? Yeah. Oh, I'll put my headphones on. Dante Bosco. Yes. You had a pretty big death for, like, everybody's childhoods. It's crazy. We've talked to a lot of people on this podcast about kind of, like, what their death and what their maybe sort of an iconic role that they've played and how that affected audiences. And there are certain deaths in the history of film and TV and in this sort of, like, genre world where right. it just is at exactly the right time. It's exactly the right director. It's exactly the right kind of movie. There was a little movie called Flying Boy. Flying Boy. Flying Bedroom Boy. I love that movie. What was it like to be in Flying Bedroom Boy? I was 15 when I did Flying Bedroom Boy. I was the We're boy. never going to mention what this movie's actually called. Hook. Hook. It's Steven Spielberg, right? Who? That guy, Steven Spielberg, who may be greatest director of his era. I mean, definitely on the money side and maybe right at the height of his powers. And then you got Robin Williams playing a grown-up Peter Pan, which I remember when that came out in the trades, and even back then, it caught the imagination of everybody, like, whoa. I, I literally called up my manager, was like, can I audition for anything in this movie? Anything. Because my other friends were auditioning for other parts, and I was like, anything. Like, I would come in and do anything. And Dustin Hoffman playing Captain Hook, and I'm a big Dustin Hoffman fan. I mean, he's on that pantheon of, like, you know, yeah. Chino De Niro, Nicholson, Hoffman, these dudes. These are the character actors in the 70s that changed everything and I was very aware that's 15 studying since I was 10 I was super serious young young thespian I knew what was up but I didn't know I was going to book this role actually my brother auditioned for it with me too my brother Darian how old was your brother at the time he's a year older than me so you both went in we both went all my brothers are actors and so we both went in and we dressed up like what we thought a lost boy would look like I was wearing a floral shirt from like oak tree like a Hawaiian shirt? No, it was like more just like tree leaves. I don't know why. Yeah, like I'm a nature. I'm in nature. nature. I'm a nature guy. Definitely had some leather wristbands on. I thought that'd be cool. 
which I ended up having a lot of the wristbands and the thing. So the crazy thing about this audition, I go in there, and then, you know, a few days go by, and they're like, they have a callback. Steven Spielberg wants to meet you. And I'm like, oh, dope. This is great. Amazing. The office is in the back of these gray studios in Universal City. We go in there, right? I guess about 10 of us, 10 kids. And they open the doors, and my dude has a full-on arcade. I mean, everything. Like, everything. I mean, whatever it was at the time, Mortal Kombat or, you know, Street Fighter, Joust, everything. And we were like, just, he's like, go, go, you guys go play. And it's those big stand-up, like, mall arcade. Yeah. And we're playing video games for like half an hour, and then he's like, someone taps me on the shoulder and is like, um, you know, Mr. Spielberg will see you now. I'm like, oh. I'm here for an audition. <laughs> I thought but I was here for an audition. This is how he relaxes these kid actors, right? Right, it I is, guess so. Yeah. And then I go back, and then we sit and talk for like 15 minutes about things. And I, I remember I was talking about another movie I did called Perfect Web. And he's like, what's that about? Like, what's your character? And I said, oh, I was like the street urchin, you know, like Ratso Rizzo. And he's like, Ratso Rizzo? We started talking about Ratso Rizzo. We started talking about Midnight Cowboy and just filmmaking and all this stuff. And then I was like, hey, you want me to, want me to read the scene? <laughs> You know? Yeah. Because we're like 15, 20 minutes yeah. in this conversation. I'm like, you want me to read the scene? And you know what he said? He goes, no. I said, what? He goes, you don't got to read. I just want to meet you. And I was like, okay. You're like, oh shit. Yeah. Or good. Or no, what? I didn't know what to do. I mean, I left the interview. I went, jumped in my mom's van and we're driving home. She's like, how'd it go? I was like, mom, I didn't get that part. I didn't get it. I didn't read it. I didn't read anything. We talked about some movies. I was fucking around playing video games. I don't know what I was doing. Yeah. And then like two, three days later, they offered me the role, which is crazy. But then I asked Steven like in the middle of shooting, right? How'd you hire me? This is the most weirdest way to, I've never been in an audition like this. Yeah. And he told me like, out of all the kids he auditioned, which I don't know how many hundreds or whatever, he was like, you're the only kid that scared me. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Thanks, man. Scared him. That time I was living in Paramount, California, which is right outside of Compton. And I grew up around a lot of gangs and gangsters. and People got shot in my school. And just, to me, the Lost Boys is a gang. I just understood the Lord of the Flies aspect of what we were doing. Mm. And so I guess he read into some of that stuff I did when I was young. It was coming off me, I guess. I don't know. What age did you start going on audition stuff? And Ten. 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 Is that because you said, Mom, I want to be an actor? Or just like, what happened? Yeah, we came to L.A. because me and my brothers are breakdancers. We're from San Francisco, and we were B-boys in San Francisco, right? And we, yeah. we were this group called the Street Freaks. I was popping fresh. That's why I was, I was, I was popping. <laughs> <laughs> but it, what's crazy is, and I, I can't believe we're so young, because I look at me, my nieces and nephews and some kids, and I'm like, we were breakdancing on the streets, like Pier 39, Telegraph Avenue, you know, the, the little hot spots, market. We had a, our hat down, our boom box, you know, cardboard box, all that stuff. Yeah. And we we're making money and stuff like that. And then we started going to contests, and we'd won all these contests. My mom said, you guys won like 30 contests in one year. Then we got picked up, and we started dancing for the Oakland A's and the San Francisco 49ers. And then we got scholarships to the San Francisco Ballet Company. We studied ballet. We did the Nutcracker. We did, were doing all this stuff. And then it got to the point where we started getting paid to dance, and we started opening up for groups like Ice-T and Vanity, like at the Stone. And we were like working young dancers, and it got to the point where, like, you guys want to go to L.A. and, like, really do this for real? And we're like, yeah, let's do it. And then Three of you. There's four, like, four, four brothers, and my sister ended up coming after. And so we ended up going to L.A. and starting our professional, professional life. We had been doing all that stuff, but then all that stuff happened before I was 10. And I, I start to think of it now, like, how do we do all, how do we all do all that stuff before I was 10? People are like, were you guys, like, 
savants or something? I don't think so. We were just kids. And it's not like my parents were breakdancers. They had no idea what we were doing. My dad was a telephone man. My mom was a mother. We just, just loved us and drove us around and like very supportive of anything we did. They didn't teach us how to break dance. They weren't doing anything with our routines. They just yeah. somehow were like, you guys do what you do. We'll drive you there. This is, yeah. what, late 80s? Mid-80s. Mid 80, we got to L.A. 85, so this is 83, 84. So the whole family moves for the business? Yeah. My dad gave us like a, a year. He's like, yeah, you guys can go to L.A. for a year. And then if it works out, I'll come down. If not, you guys can come home. I mean, I ended up booking the first thing I ever auditioned for. There was a TV show in the 80s called The Wizard. It was for a Native, a Native American character, and I, my first role was playing Native American. But I'm Filipino, but, you know, it's before these— there was I was going to say, back then, it was like, if you don't look white, you could play so many I different mean, things, if right? if you look at my, my, my <laughs> whole thing, I played every Latino role, Mexican, Puerto Rican, every different Asian role. They, they didn't know what I was. They are like, what are you? And I'm like, I'm Filipino. And they're like— what is that? And I'm like, what's this role? And they're like, Mexican. And I'm like, you have to understand that Filipinos are Latino. We got conquered by Spain just like Mexico. My last name is Spanish. That's what that is. What's this role? It's Chinese. You got to understand. I'm Asian. My grandma on my dad's side, she's part Chinese. Oh. You know, anything. It's like I, yeah. I was like the little kid. I, I was have, hustling. I have yeah. everything. What do you need? I'm Filipino. We have it all in us. It's interesting, the makeup of the Lost Boys. It was like a ragtag group of people of different origins and cultures and yeah. who looked different. And he didn't cast what you may have thought of as like what you think the Lost Boys should look like. Right. Especially your character. You're the hero of that movie in a lot hey, of ways. I'm surprised as much as anybody. But yeah, I, he just kind of casted it in this new way. And when you're young, you don't know. You're just kind of going like, I'm just trying to do a good job every day. You know, I was a young actor that wore my heroes on my sleeve and... Steven used to say cut all the time. I saw him on my script at the end during a rap day when he wrote my script. He wrote, stop imitating Brando. So every scene, he'd be like, cut. Dante, stop imitating Brando. Top to the top. And then we go and do the scene over again, right? And I'm this 15-year-old kid. He puts you in your place real hard, real place, fast. Which I get, but also I think people were tripping out like, damn, this kid's trying to do Brando. But I'm, and in my mind, I'm like, I'm not doing Brando. I'm, I'm actually doing Pacino. Steven. <laughs> but Pacino was doing Brando, so I know what Little you mean. Do you know. yeah, yeah. Little do you know. And then Hoffman's like, well, why aren't you doing Hoffman? Well, I don't know. Did All he right? say that? No, but I can feel it. You know what I'm yeah. saying? But, so uh, that's me. I'm always doing Hoffman. I mean, I love Hoffman. I would show up on my days off to watch Hoffman. Like, I'm literally, I mean, and of course, Robin Williams. I mean, I'm sure. Robin's doing improv. No one's doing improv on screen, and he's doing improv. Now people do improv all the time, but he was doing it like crazy stuff. And so my days off at 15, I would just come to the set, and I'd sit next to Steven, and Steven would look at me, and I would just watch. I'd watch Hoffman, and I'd watch Robin, and I'd watch Steven. Steven started talking to me about directing. and started talking about lenses. He started talking about camera movement. And... When I talk to like art schools and kids at, you know, drama school and whatnot, and I'm like, this is the deal, man. When you're in the presence of greatness, like, you better know it. Like, know it and just be there because hopefully you can just get, like, just anything from them. It's You understand, when I was with Spielberg and Hoffman and Robin Williams, it was like, to me, a 15 young series actor, it was like having the opportunity to sit and watch Picasso paint a stroke or be in a symphony hall and watch Mozart 
conducted. I'm coming to set every day. Like, yeah, was, uh, so was Dustin, like, I watched uh, I watched Lenny last night. So when this happened, like, what were you thinking? Like, and he's like looking at me. I'm uh-huh. like, yo, I watched Kramer vs. Kramer last night. So when you did this, this, and this, what happened that scene? When, and he's like, did look, he love it? He loved it. He was looking at me like crazy and like, okay. And I was like, I'm here, Dustin. I'm, I'm just going to let you know. I'm watching you do your thing. At first, what's crazy about Hoffman was he was very adversarial towards me. When we first met. Because he's methody. Because he's method. He's like, real method. He literally was coming at me off camera with daggers. Dustin would be in my ears saying adversive things. And as a kid actor, you're like, why is like he? Like what? Tell me. Come, you like, must remember something. Can you do it like him? Dante. Dante. He would Come say here. crazy stuff. He was like, oh, he's, oh, he's like, this kid's going good. He was like saying crazy stuff like, oh, this guy's, this guy's like, oh, well, he's, he's giving you a run for your money. I haven't done anything yet. And he's like. He's just talking about other Lost Boys yeah, acting. Yeah. Like leveraging. Oh, like, that one's very good. He was like Captain Hook. And I was like, why is one of my heroes coming at me? I remember talking to my teacher at the time. She's like, he's an actor's actor. Like, he's method. He's Captain Hook. He knows you're the new Peter Pan. Like, when it comes time for you guys to do it, he wants to be, have the upper hand. I'm like, so what do I do? He's like, let him know what you think of him. Like, literally let him know. And, I, and then that's when I started really talking to him about him and his work. I wasn't supposed to die at first. I was supposed to come back and lead the Lost Boys. By the way, me and I think millions of other people were shocked when you died. The whole world was shocked. It was weird. I talked to Jim Hart about it. Jim, who wrote, he's like, I always wanted you to die because I needed those stakes for Neverland to be dangerous, not just gumballs and chicken stuff. But if you watch the film, they never set it up for it to happen. They just did it It out of nowhere. Yeah. But when you first got the script and you read through it, I didn't die. I wasn't supposed to die. And what happens to Rufio in that? I get the sword at the end. Originally, I was supposed to do a Lost Boys series. Oh, man, that would have been good. I know, but then then they killed me. So when they said you're going to die, I've never died before in a film. So I started knocking on doors of the stars to ask him how to do a death scene. You know, Robin, I've never died in a scene. Like, you have any advice? And he, he told me some stuff. One of my memories is Bob Hoskins, who I love. Rest in peace, Bob Hoskins. And he's funny and hilarious guy. And I knocked on his door. I was like, Bob, I've never died in the film. I'm going to die. You have any advice? And he's like, wait, you stop breathing, right? You understand when you get stabbed, you just stop breathing. And I was like, thank you, Bob. <laughs> but he was like, obviously, just, obviously just, don't, just don't breathe. Just don't breathe. Yeah, just die. And then when I went to Dustin's, and again, I've been studying him for months now, and he was like, when are you dying? When are you doing the scene? I was like, next Wednesday. He's like, I'll be there. And then he became my acting coach for like two days, going through the whole death scene with me. It was crazy. What did he have to say about it? So many things as we're running the scene and we're doing it. He's like an acting coach. And there's times where Stephen would kind of just let him talk to me and direct me to a degree. Oh, that line, run away from that line. That line's too heavy. Don't run. You don't need to run away from that line. It was very crazy in my memory. Imagine Hoffman being your acting coach. You're doing a death scene. He's there. He stabbed you. He's the one giving you direction as you're doing it. Try it this way. Try it that way. I'm like, what the fuck's going on here? Had you ever done any, like, stage combat? No, no, but I was a dancer, so it really worked well. So I mean, You the, move like a motherfucker hey, in that movie. I'm very proud. That it all makes sense. All the sword fighting is like me. They had me, like, studying fencing, like, oh, two, shit. three months before we started shooting. Do you do all your own stunts in that movie? No, and not the trapeze stuff, but all that stuff, uh, yeah. And it was cool. And Dustin wasn't a great fencer. Our fencer judge was like, just parry everything. I'm like, that's a real sword. And he's like, you got it. You're good. And I'm like, that's a real sword he's trying to stab me with. <laughs> It was a real sword? Well, you know, with the close-ups, he has a real sword. But they're like, just parry everything. You got it, don't you? <laughs> so some of those reactions are like, don't stab me, please. Fade in. 
Exterior Captain Hook's pirate ship. Day. Rufio. Rufio. Captain Hook chants. Rufio, the former leader of the Lost Boys, smirks and slowly walks towards the pirate. Looking menacing in his trademark red and black attire, his leather jacket affixed with small bones and his red and black mohawk perfectly quaffed. Rufio makes the first move as he lunges towards the one-handed Captain Hook. The captain parries, and Rufio counters, but the pirate grabs Rufio's sword with his infamous hook, throwing the sword to the ground, leaving Rufio momentarily defenseless. But the teenage Rufio is agile and rotates around Hook, sliding on his knees to retrieve his fallen sword. Momentarily distracted by the sight of the grown-up Peter Pan flying nearby, Hook falters, and Rufio is able to guide his sword in a semicircle over his opponent's blade to trap Hook's weapon under his own. Looky, looky, I've got Hooky! But Hook manages to free his blade, catching Rufio off guard. With one more thrust of his sword, Captain Hook stabs his blade into the chest of his opponent. No! shouts Peter Pan as he flies down to cradle his dying friend. Do you know what I wish? Rufio whispers to Peter, using the last of his breath. I wish I had a dad like you. If you were like between 8 and 12 at that era in 1991, the death of Rufio is like our first traumatic moment, like going to a kid's movie and seeing a kid die, and now he's immortalized, right? This is the wildest thing about Hollywood. I'm this Filipino kid, breakdancer, doing my thing. Somehow now people dress up in cosplay with their friends. There's a Peter Pan, there's a Tinkerbell, there's a Captain Hook, maybe a crocodile. And then somebody in the crew is dressed up representing this little Filipino boy character in, in Peter Pan. Like forever, I'm canon in a fairy tale. How, how, how does that happen? I got a kick when they were doing Once Upon a Time and they had the Peter Pan thing and Hook and Peter Pan were fighting and Hook was about to stab Peter Pan. He's like, remember what happened to Rufio? <laughs> and you're like, oh my goodness, it just lives on. It's like you said, it's canon. It's canon. I did when I was 15. I'm 46 now, right? So I've been like Rufio for like my whole life. I'll be at a cafe sitting, someone honks, yell bangerang. And you're just like, hey. It's like just a lot of kind of cool just universal love. What was it like to work with Robin Williams? When he died, it shook the world. And when I worked with him, he was, I can't believe I'm older than he, he was then, but he was just a beautiful soul. We would talk about poetry. So I would come on the set, Dead Poets Society was one of my favorite films and I loved poetry. And uh, I started writing poetry and we would talk about poetry. Me and my brothers made our own Dead Poets Society. And we live in the garage of my house and we literally watched the movie so many times. We've gone to the beach in the middle of the night and kind of proclaimed our who the fuck we were as young artists, naked you in your the, barbaric y'all. Yeah, to we the were, world. He's like, Leonie, you really doing that? And then we, we're talking about poets. He's talking about, of course, the transcend, transcendental poets that he loves. And then I'm really into Charles Bukowski and Diane Wykowski. And I'm like talking about these other beat poets I really like. He was just a big supporter of that, right? He gave me this really beautiful leather bound book, Big Walt Women's Leaves of Grass, as my rap present. And I ended up starting a poetry venue in my living room, like shortly after that. That poetry venue, and a lot of love and support from Robin, was called Dante's Poetry Lounge, and it became DPL, Deaf Poetry Lounge. And that went on to become the inspiration for Deaf Poetry on HBO. Went to Broadway, won a Tony, 
to this day, it's the largest weekly open mic venue in the country. I attribute some of the energy to like just poetry and Robin Williams and dead poets. I talk, and hours and hours of talking about poetry with him on the set. I go back to Robin and go be like that. Know everybody. The director and the number one on the set, like the day's going to go how they're going. If they're having a good day, we're all going to have a good day. If you're being a jerk, this could be a really bad day. He recognizes that his energy on that set yeah, is important. 100%. And he didn't have to, but he took the morale of, I mean, again, that's a Spielberg set. We're talking about hundreds of people. He knows everybody. He's like keeping them around. We're doing 14, 16 hour days. You know, we did it. It's an eight month shoot. This is long. And he just kind of put it on his shoulders to be like, I'm, you know, I have to imagine when he's doing like uh, in between takes, like just riffing on Peter Pan. Crazy. But there are all sorts of like R rated Peter Pan like, monologues between takes. No one's really improving at this time on yeah. films, especially not big films. And he would do it how it's scripted. Great. And then he would like look back at Steven and kind of do like, I got this. And so see him, let's go. And you know. So he always like, I need one. Yeah, for let me, me. Can I, let me do one. And he's like, yeah. And then he would just go. And you, if you're in the scene, you just kind of like. Yeah, hold on for dear life. Uh, they're like, you're going to improv? I'm like, no, I'm not going to improv with him. He's like the Marlon Brando of improv. What are you talking about? But it was, I, my whole thing was like, this is the deal. Either you're going to try to improv or you get steamrolled. My strategy at the end is like, what I'm going to do is I'm going to let him do his thing. And then I'm going to just jump to the next line. I'm going to find a good time. I'm going to jump to the next line, and I'm going to look at him hard and see what he does. <laughs> then just let him do his thing. Wow. He's magical. That's incredible. He was amazing. So this, this is my memory of 15. Like, so I did Hook, and we're like... It's the biggest movie in the world that year. It's the biggest movie in the world that year. So the generation I ran around with, Leo and Toby, and then it was like, you know, like Soleil Moon Fry and like Corky Nemec. There's like the cast that were around our age, a little older than us, like... Corey Feldman would be around, and we'd all kind of party around the same places. Dave Faustino threw a club with Nick Adler called Ballistics. So it was a hip-hop club, but it was a teenage club. But he's Dave Faustino, and he was on Married with Children, right? And he's a big hip-hop head. For a lot of people that don't know, he was so influential in L.A. hip-hop, producing people, being a part of the whole hip-hop scene. But then people like Naughty by Nature would come to his club, Onyx, Grand Poobah, like, you would see, like, the biggest hip-hop acts come to this club. And then when you're in the club, all the actors on film and television, kid actors were in that club and were dancing. And, I mean, young Scott Kahn was in a group called The Hooligans, and they were rapping. And it was, like, my memories of us being young Hollywood. And this is before internet, so, like, no one cared. You could get away with so much. Yeah, we were in, like, Tiger Beat. Like, someone had a poster of us, you know, Jonathan Brandis, rest in peace, yeah. and would run with us. And so that's who was covering us. Now the kids, it's like, they're like 16, 17, they're on the cover of Vanity Fair, and people care who they're dating. No one cared at all what we were doing. Everyone stayed at the Holiday Inn in Burbank, and people would get rooms there, and then we would, like, have alcohol and just, we were teenagers. We yeah. just happened to be actors that are teenagers, and then... Someone would get into a fight and ruin the room and we get in trouble and then we all got to run before the security gets there. And Like, we're literally teenagers. But also, I got scared. I always had my brothers and we always hung out with each other. We had our beepers. Like, my mom would be pages like, time to come home. We're like, gotta go. We did grow up fast and I think we appreciate that part of it, but we weren't too keen on mental health and all that kind of stuff back then. I mean, people had passed away. Friends, Jonathan Brandis passed away. Nino from Bronx Tale, he would yeah. come to L.A. and he went to jail for doing some crazy stuff and we used to party with him. I mean, we're kids and you get the keys to the kingdom very young and sometimes there's not a lot of 
good guidance around and when we're like, things happen, you know? Yeah. Yeah, we've had a full life in this Hollywood crazy world. Quick question. We talked to um, Nick Castle, who was... He was one of the writers on the film. Right, he was one of the writers. And, you know, we talked about Michael Myers. You know, he's the first Michael Myers uh, in Halloween. Oh, really? So he and Carpenter went to school together, worked on each other's movies. He directed The Last Starfighter, one of my favorite movies. One of my favorite movies of movie. all time, for sure. See Nick Castle? We all love that movie. But he was talking a little bit about Hook, and he initiated that that concept with, I think, with Jim Hart, right? Yeah, the two of them. Yeah kind of talked about it, but his version, he said, was going to be a, a bit darker, totally. a bit more realistic. I could dig that, because the story of Peter Pan is actually the original. It's pretty dark. We all love this brighter, lighter side because of Disney. Disney has this thing. We all think of it as this one thing, but when you really look at the story of Peter Pan, it's a weird, dark story. I would say that your version of Rufio fits in line with his version of probably what Rufio was going to be. I think so. And so when the death made sense, I did talk to Nick at Comic-Con. We talked about the grittier, the darker version of the film. And him and Jim Hart, they were talking about Dustin's amazing. They love Dustin, but they were thinking more like Daniel Day-Lewis playing Captain Hook. You know, he told me he had him originally envisioned was Kevin Klein. Wow. That Kevin Klein was the first one that they talked to about Hook. And the first actor they talked to about Peter Pan was Tom Hanks. Oh, wow. I can't thank you enough for doing this. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I had 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 a blast. Well, folks, I have a confession to make. Um... I was so captivated by Dante's charm that I completely forgot to ask him my favorite playing dead question. So, I called him up to ask him what his favorite on-screen death is. I guess, you know, growing up, watching all the greats and whatnot, I gotta go to Godfather. Sonny's death in Godfather is so epic. I mean, epic, epic, epic death. Even going back to watch it today, it's just like, how many bullets did my guy take? I was watching as a young actor, it's like, if you're going to die, I want to die like that. Let's go out in a blaze of glory. So, yeah, I got to say Sonny in The Godfather. And let me tell you, it was a good thing. I was able to chat with Dante again because he shared with me such a fantastic Dustin Hoffman story. Oh, wow. Here it is. One of the crazy things that happened is I lost my virginity during the shooting of Hook. And, you know, I came and set the next day, as I told you, I would just go on my days off. And I'm show, I show up on set, I'm sitting next to the camera, next to Steve, and I'm watching Dustin do some stuff. And he literally looks at me and he's like, in full Captain Hook character, he's like, Rufio, you're glowing. Have you been getting some? And I went flush red. He said to me, remember, it's not the size of the wand, it's the magic it makes. And he continues with the scene. And I'm just sitting there, dying. Dustin Hoffman's amazing. Crazy. Noah Hathaway started his acting career at just three years old when he was cast in a national Pepsi commercial. Now, he has worked alongside some of the greatest icons of our generation, including Mark Hamill in the movie Sushi Girl, and, like Dante, Robin Williams when he was a guest star on Mork and Mindy. Now, he became a household name when he played Boxy in Battlestar Galactica, and he became a heartthrob when he played Atreyu in The NeverEnding Story. He joined us virtually from his home in Las Vegas, looking like a badass and sucking on a red lollipop. Hey, it's Noah Hathaway with a lollipop. Fuck yeah, man. Oh, right on. What's up, man? 
sweating my face off. It's like 111 here in Vegas. What are you doing in Vegas? Me and the dogs decided to go and move to Vegas about, about just two years ago almost. LA just got a little too intense for me. <laughs> the minute I go to LA, I just feel trapped and I feel like I don't feel free there. When the pandemic hit, it was a good excuse for me to do nothing but to just sit and write. And I wrote a couple TV shows, a couple movies. And so that's kind of where I'm geared now. I think I have more to say as a writer and a producer than as an actor at this moment. Acting for me is like a young guy's game. You were this gorgeous <laughs> child. Every girl when I was growing up was obsessed with you. But you made it really hard for us as kids trying to find, you know, love in elementary school. <laughs> We're like, well, we can't compete with that guy. I mean, that's the one thing I hear more than anything was, you're my first crush. I wish I had a quarter for every time I heard that. I'd have some Elon Musk money, but it's just weird, man. Yeah, that that's a strange dynamic that I, I, I never will be quite comfortable with. <laughs> but like, every time I do an appearance, every time I go somewhere... I have people come up and hug me that are crying. Like I do a lot of these appearance things, blah, blah, blah. And I don't see people coming up to Mark Hamill bawling and hugging and like they're happy, but there's just a different level of it's, it's intense. It's deep. People really like, it, it really touched people and really moved people. And I got a lot of people that say it changed my life. It, taught me how to dream big. I'm a fan of the human spirit, and that's pretty much the one sole reason that I talk about it, that I still do signings. But you know, like that's the other thing. The people that it brings together is amazing. I've made some great friends with people I would have never have met, but because of the movie and it touches certain people, like to see Corey Taylor from yeah. Slipknot shaking like he was about to seize was really surreal, you know? Like that kind of hit it to like how special that movie is. I mean, this guy performs in front of, you know, half a million people at, at certain festivals and, and like nothing. And he was literally <laughs> like sh shivering when we met. It's strange. I mean, I was in Jersey <clears throat> doing a signing and I had these two big ass bikers. They were like 6'2", six 6'4", six tatted up. <laughs> They come up to my table and I had a picture of the scene with the horse, you know, and they started crying. Come on now, dude. Like, I'm a crier. Yeah, yeah, trust yeah. me. But, uh, ask my wife. I'm super sensitive. But I ain't crying in public like that. You're crazy. And these are guys who are like three times my size. So I'm hugging these big old yeah. dudes. And it's just it has special tempo that I guess nobody ever really touched on before. And I think that's it, man. I, I think there's something about it that connects us all to one singular kind of thread. But let's go back to the beginning. Well, you know auditioning sucks, <laughs> but I auditioned for a year. So they had a different director than Wolfgang at the beginning and they were having issues. And so they saw like 50, 70,000 kids and then they hired me and then they fired the guy. And then they, they brought Wolfgang on and they did a whole nother started all over again. So it was like six months flushed down the toilet. And then I guess they had Wolfgang waiting in the wings. And uh, I auditioned five or six more times. And then finally they were like, okay, we're gonna screen test you in Germany. So I flew to Germany and uh, they painted me green upon arrival, which was horrifying because I couldn't see being forest green for a year. <laughs> 
I would have shot myself. Wait, why did they paint you green? Well, he, in the book, Atreyu's green. And I think they wanted him to be like the heartthrob type of thing too. So they had me tan a little more. So there you are in Germany. You're how old at this point? Oh, I think I just turned 12. So yeah, it was oh, two years of my life from like 11 to 13 was just never ending story. It was supposed to be a three month shoot turned into a year in Germany. Did you go to school? I had school on set because my parents figured it would be interesting to send me to a uh, private French school. I was always a pain in the ass because I had to have a French teacher because all my classes were in French. I had English twice a week. As a 12 year old kid, I would imagine being in that world on some level was cool. What, what was the experience like? When you walked onto the set, like when we first rolled up, you knew it was bigger and more intense in every aspect of shooting a movie than I'd ever been a part of. And Battlestar Galactica was a million dollars an episode in 78. Like that was the most expensive TV show for a, quite a while in the, the late 70s, probably through a good portion of the 80s. That was your first big yeah, job. That was your I first was, like TV job. I just turned six. It was huge back then. I mean, that was a huge undertaking. And the never-ending story just blew that away by miles. I mean, they had the biggest soundstage in all of Europe at the time. It was huge. Wall-to-wall. -wall, it had to have been two football fields. Mud. Six foot deep. I mean, they created that swamp. It was brilliant. But... Man, it was two and a half months just in that swamp. Just sitting there, wasting, yeah. trying to save a horse. You know, you have to match every shot and we're in the mud. And so you got to shower and shoot and shower and shoot. So some of it was awesome and the jumping out of trees. But when you do it a hundred times, when you get blown out of the tree, around 35, it stops being fun anymore, you know, and then it starts to suck. I was very opinionated and I guess secure 12-year-old actor. And so we got into a bunch of arguments because he just wanted all this screaming. And, you know, he's very German. There's a bunch of times where I was like, nope, not going to happen. And we did like 50, 60 takes. Nope, not going to do it like that. And, and then we had this amazing dialect coach named Robert Easton. And at the time, he was like the man for coaches. And he took me aside and said, just do one for him. It'll shut him up. But just stick to your guns because you know what's right and what you should be doing. And uh, but just give him one good one like he wants. And I was like, all right, cool. So that's kind of what I would do with him. If, if, if I didn't believe in his vision at the time, we'd talk about it. And uh, but that's about the extent of my involvement. You were 12 years old. Like my kids are almost nine. And it's just like the idea of them at 12 years old doing what you did in this movie is just I can't even conceive of it. Where did you pull your thoughts about acting from at that age? So anything I do, even if it's like a couple of days on a job, I'll do a whole backstory that kind of sets the character up for what I need it to do or for what the story needs him to do. Plus, I read that fucker like a million times. So I know everybody's lines. I know everybody's actions. And then there's the other stuff you add to that. Like listening to your partner, intently listen to what your partner's saying. That just in itself does a lot, at least for me. If you really listen to what the person who's playing opposite, just that brings you to a sense of reality that I think a lot of people just miss. I will tell you that your performance in that movie is maybe my favorite 
like kids performance I think that I've ever seen. It's just the most, it's so raw. It's so real. It's so in the moment and you fully believe that you believe what you're doing. You know what I mean? Like there is something extremely authentic about what you're bringing to that. And obviously in our conversation now, that is kind of who you are. I think it's fundamentally probably who you are and who you've always been. The Artax's death, the horse's death in the swamps of sadness, hands down, like in terms of movie deaths, just do a Google search and you did like 10 most intense, fucked up, iconic deaths for movies. It's almost always on there. Oh yeah, it's there. Fade in, exterior, swamps of sadness, dusk. Atrehu and his loyal horse, Artax, trudge through the swamps of sadness. The swamp, gray and cold, is filled with quicksand like mud pools. It is the physical form of despair. Anyone who lets his sorrow overtake them will quickly sink into the mud and die. The Orin, a powerful medallion which protects its wearer from harm, hangs from Atreyu's neck. But Artax, a magnificently beautiful white horse, wears no such protection. Overtaken by the emotions of the swamp, Artax stops. Come on, Artax! Atreyu whispers as he tugs on the horse's reins. What's the matter? What's wrong? Artax looks around at his surroundings, then back at Atreyu. Atreyu smiles. I understand. It's too difficult for you. His smile, though, quickly vanishes when he notices his friend start to sink. Artax! Atreyu screams, tears streaming down his cheeks. Fight the sadness! You're letting the sadness of the swamps get to you! You have to care for me! You're my friend! I love you! But his screams fall onto deaf ears as Artax sinks further and further into the mud. Artax! Stupid horse! You've got to move, or you'll die! But he doesn't move. And the beautiful white horse disappears into the mud, never to be seen again. Except in every child's nightmare, born between 1975 and 1990. When you watch that movie, you're like, they're not going to kill the horse. And then you're like, <laughs> but you know what the fuck? Stuff? In the book, he talks. <laughs> so imagine, imagine he's going, Atreyu, please save me. Like, and he's all monotone and depressed. That's so much worse in my opinion. Like, oh, he's just like, please save me. What are you doing? Why won't you help me? In your movie, he just sort of like sits there and kind of accepts his fate. He's just like, yeah, I'm going to drown. See you, man. So yeah, he's so, he bought into the sadness so much that he just, yeah, it's all you just, you can't do anything. Paralyzed with fear, I guess it would be. How many times did you have to scream and cry in that scene? Like, how did you do that 50 fucking times? We shot a six day work week and we shot that for just over two weeks. What did you do to get into that? I mean, we went over stuff and he was very passionate. First of all, I didn't speak great English. His English got much better as we went along. So that was challenging. I don't know, for myself, I have different techniques. I think being like that, I have to just do a combination of, I would guess, sense memory. And 
I mean, the set and all, everything was so real looking and intense that it really put you in a time, place, situation. And I think once the adrenaline gets uh, really pumping and then once it gets going, it's fuck, it's hard to control and stop sometimes. We had Jim Henson's team doing all the puppeteering. And I mean, just for the Falcor, there had to have been 20 people under the stage, like pulling cables and making lips move. And that was pretty remarkable, especially for the time. You know, they couldn't do it again. Obviously, Falcor, for me, for many people, that was the <laughs> best dog you could ever have. I was like, I want that fucking dog. I had an old, toothless, weird cat growing up. I did not have... <laughs> That badass dog. Weird. I remember seeing that movie and being like, fuck, come on, where's my Falcor? A short time after The NeverEnding Story came out, Noah took a break from being a teen heartthrob. I kind of phased acting out completely for about like 12 years. I was a mortgage broker for a couple of years, uh, which was funny. I tattooed in Austria for, so it was supposed to be just a week, like a guest spot, and it, it turned into two months because I was so busy. They just were like, just stay here. So I probably did maybe 20 of the necklace of the symbol, the Arn. And it's not an easy tattoo because it's just all perfect circles. You know, and I'm not like Joe Tattoo. Like, I, you know, I, I tattoo what I like to do and I'm good at it. <laughs> it was very specific. But yeah, I just said, no more. I don't want to do anymore. It's not fun for me. And then I, I was living in Amsterdam for a couple of years and came back to do this movie, Sushi Girl, with Mark Hamill and a bunch of crazy people. That was, it was awesome. I mean, it'd been 12 years. Nobody knew where I, like, I guess they found my email address and told me who was attached to it. And it was Mark Hamill, Tony Todd, Michael Bean, and a couple other cats, and Jimmy Duvall. And they go, we have Sonny Chiba. And I'm, you know, I've been a fan of Sonny since I was a little kid. So we have a conversation. They go, shit, we'd love to have you uh, aboard. When can you come out? And I go, send me a ticket. Like, let's go. I was on a plane six hours later. Like, they weren't playing. And I never went back to Europe. Yeah, I just rolled out and started working. So I just wanted to do a quick summary of Sushi Girl for those of you who haven't seen the movie yet. A jewel thief named Fish, played by Noah, has recently been released from a six-year prison term for his involvement in a diamond heist. His accomplices welcome him home with an elaborate meal of sushi served on the body of a naked woman. When Fish reveals he does not know where the diamonds are, the crime boss, played by Candyman himself, Tony Todd, does not believe him and Fish is tied up and tortured by Tony and the other gang members who just happen to be played by James Duval and Mark Hamill. Tony Todd is utterly method and so when I signed on, he started leaving me threatening voice calls as his character Duke on my machine. Like, where's my fucking diamonds? Like, oh, Lord. we're gonna come get you and find, like, and he's, <laughs> but like, he did it for years. He left one like six months ago on my damn machine, dude. <laughs> that is so funny. And then Hamill's on there. Was that need to, to like work with him at all? Yeah, everybody has a story, you know? And I like people's stories and people are interesting. And Mark's interesting. He's a like a song and dance guy. He's seen a lot in Hollywood, but yeah, he was real standoffish. First day of work, didn't really talk to anybody didn't really say anything 
other than work. And so they were like, yo, you smoke a lot of weed. Why don't you see if Mark will like hang out and burn with you? I go, all right. I knock on his door and he opens it and he was like 50 pounds overweight and he had extensions in his hair and he's in his little underwear, like some white ass BVDs. I go, I know, you, you know, you smoke. And then he goes, well, back in the set of Star Wars, Harrison Ford used, I go, okay, I'll hear about it in a minute. Come to my trailer when you're dressed. Like two minutes later, he was all, hey, like I was like, damn, he got dressed quick. Smoke for about five minutes, and then every 30 seconds, there was a knock at the door, and, and I just had, like, a little honey wagon. Maybe 30 minutes into it, there's, like, 20 people sitting in the <laughs> damn honey wagon because they just want to be around Mark Hamill smoking some weed. And you, too, man. That's fucking a tray you and Luke Skywalker smoking weed so we, together. But, but he can fucking talk. No, like, sober, he can talk. But like after a couple of burns, he wouldn't shut up for four hours. So we'd sit in the trailer every night after we'd rap and we'd sit and listen to Mark for like two hours, tell stories. And then he'd get in his limo. They'd take him back to, uh, he lived in Topanga Canyon. Wow. But he'd call from the car and finish his story. <laughs> Just to wrap things up here. A lot of people think you're dead at the end of the movie. And then you somehow get resurrected by Bastion's imagination or whatever it is. But in my estimation, I remember when I was a kid that I thought you died. I would say extinguished, not dies. You know what I mean? He makes a wish and wishes that everything was back to the way it was and then some. And thank God. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a movie where, like, the entire movie <laughs> dies. You know what I mean? It's not a character that dies in that movie. The entire movie dies at the end. And Bastion's character as us, right? Because right. we're kind of the audience. We're reading the story, watching the story unfold. He is us and he's confronted with death. Mm. He's confronted with what nothing feels like. Did you have a feeling about like what your fate as you're, because you're flying around on Falcor in the middle of space. That is like a very disturbing image. I always felt very disturbed by it because there was like no place to go. Well, think we're all spinning on a rock in the middle of the universe with nothing out there as a world that's fucking crazy in itself. Like, we're spinning on this thing at a thousand whatever miles an hour, at, and there's just infinite space out there that just keeps getting bigger. The reason that people respond so deeply is there are two heroes, there's two climaxes, they both twist and switch, and then you're on another, you know, so Atreyu dies, and you're on this whole quest, but all the kid has to do is is call out her name. So his job was done instantly. And then you have the new hero who saves the rest of Fantasia. I think you're so invested and then it kicks you in the nuts and then you're so invested right away again. And there's just the horse. There's just a lot in it that just kind of really grabs you by the balls and, and does some like little weird things. The never ending story to me is the story of just like existence outside of human beings. It's just the, the greater concept of existence. And we are just one part of that story. But the lesson to me that it gives, and I think I got it on some level when I was a kid, was there is something greater than yourself. So you have to just always believe that your time is finite, but there is something out there. And it's not God. It's, it is this thing that we are all spinning on, this one rock spinning into oblivion that Agreed. will then turn into a new, new reality and a new reality, a new reality. As artists, we just continue to create 
and our stories live on and we keep creating and we keep evolving and we keep changing and we keep challenging ourselves and challenging the outside world to look at us in a different way and we look at them in a different way. And I think to me, that's, yeah. as an artist, that's what I take away from that movie and that experience. And it sounds like, you know, that's who you are yeah. as a person. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're telling your never ending story over it's and over. really over. good. That's do you really like do you good. like that? Do you like how I like you have a gift. tied that up? <laughs> <That's really good. laughs> Thanks. Is there a death in movies or TV or anything like that? It was like something that you saw that you were just haunted by that really affected you the way that like that horse's death affected all of us. I mean, like Daniel Day Lewis doing my left foot. I don't think I've ever seen anything as good as that. I mean, between the physicality and just everything. On that note, listen, Noah Hathaway, you're a gentleman and a scholar for doing this and for talking with us and giving us some insight into you and that experience and your life and your very interesting brain, and we appreciate it. Thank you. Here on Playing Dead, we like to explore all manner of memorable screen deaths. And there's one medium where death is almost always a main character. Video games. This is where you, the viewer, get to actually participate in the deaths of your favorite characters and sometimes even take a turn for yourself. Basically, there's a shit ton of death. And even some evil childlike creatures that cause quite a bit of mayhem. Paula Rhodes is talking to us on this lovely day. And Paula has the dubious honor of being killed mm-hmm. and killing. Yes. And having someone in the real world being able to use her to kill others. And let's see if we can guess what we're talking about here. Paula is star of many video games, very famous video games. And what a weird world to die in, because it's not you, but it is you. Right. But also to be used as an instrument of murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I consider myself well-rounded in that aspect. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, when you are doing a game, you're recording multiple ways in which yeah. one might die. Would you say... <laughs> Resident Evil was your most iconic character you've played so far? Probably that dies. Probably in the death realm. I mean, like, Barbie characters are iconic, and, you know, there's some other ones I've done that are definitely up there as far as... uh, Is there a Barbie death scene? No, I think they've kept it pretty alive. Did you voice Barbie? I did Skipper and Stacy, so two of her sisters for years, in the Life in the Dream House, which was super fun. So, yeah, some various fun, iconic-y characters and different cartoons and things over the years. But I would say, yeah, definitely my two Resident Evil villains are the most um, bloody. <laughs> we, know, we haven't talked to somebody who's had the experience uh, of dying in an avatarish way. <laughs> First of all, you seem like a lovely person. Oh, so, lies. It's a filter. That's right. No, maybe that's it. But, you know, you have to channel some, like, evil shit, some murderous rage, some, like, right. psychopathic the, I mean, behavior. Villains in general, you know, are scariest or best when they don't think they're villains. Because in real life, you know, people who are perhaps what most of us would call evil don't think of themselves that way, right? They're just yeah. pursuing an end which they think is worth it. So that's sort of how I approached them, even though they're in this lovely 2D, you know, crazy, hyper-real <laughs> world. You still come at it from a, a real perspective of like, this is how I would feel in the situation were I not raised by humans, I guess. <laughs> like, well. right. But yeah, both Evelyn in Resident Evil 7 and 8 and Angie, the little doll character I do, are quite 
different in their approaches and yet weirdly complementary to each other and their approach to um, life and or taking thereof. What was it like the first time, though, you saw your character kill someone? Do you bear any responsibility? Mm -hmm. Um, Emotionally, morally? uh, No, no, no. It's easy to let go of that one. Uh, (laughs) So I came to the Resident Evil world in kind of a wild way in that I... I literally had just given birth to my first child like an hour before. I'm in the hospital and the phone rings and I thought it was my aunt because the number was similar. So I picked it up. It was actually the producers for uh, <laughs> the game yeah. seeing if I'd come in and read for it. And I'm like, oh, awesome. But they, they don't divulge the exact game. I just kind of knew generally what it might be-ish. Untitled horror game. Yes. To do the motion capture because I'm five feet tall. I'm like 12-year-old sized. So I do the motion capture for kids and things and then also the voices. Oh, interesting. And at the time I was like, I don't know if I can come in tomorrow. <laughs> just had a baby. Um, yeah. I've really haven't done this before. And they were like, Luckily, parents as well. So they were like, oh, my gosh, congratulations. Why are you answering the phone? You were like, I was just in my own horror game. <laughs> right? Uh, but they were like, take take two weeks. Come in. And I, I got to go in then with my, my newborn and audition for the, the Capcom team. And it's wild. It's all of the acting art forms together because it's kind of theater in the round. And yet you're using every imaginative cell you have because instead of having props or a set to help you elevate everything it's like i'm in spandex and i have a camera hanging off my head so to to be on set the first day and really see where the bar was for everybody as far as their like thousand percent commitment that was uh jumping in the deep end for me and being like oh well let's do this then (laughs) Are, are you like looking at a bunch of tennis balls on sticks and they're like that's a demon that's a thing that's a this Sometimes, yes. So they'll tape out or mark out where the set is according to what's already been designed with thousands of digital cameras and lights around it. And then they'll have actual, you know, three or four physical cameras that are going to be following you. And you'll have set pieces that are important, like there's a door, but the door may not be an actual door. It might be a PA holding (laughs) a stick that you have to push against, you know, and it might be like, oh, I'm picking up this baseball bat with nails in it but really it's you know pvc pipe that's slightly weighted or something so you're using a lot of imagination full-on preschool-tastic go with it but you do get into it especially when you see what these amazing actors bring to the table and and show up with on set too and uh so are you working with other actors in like a scene yeah for the most part you're at least with one other actor sometimes sometimes multiple which was a real joy to get to perform But with video games, you can only use one take for the entire thing, no matter how many cameras you're cutting between. So it's not like you can use this part of this take and then be part of the other take to go together for someone's coverage. Because they're mapping you in the room and with all the stuff. And it has to be like exact. Exact. So you have to get one perfect take with all the various elements working well. It's a whole nother ball game, which is amazing and fun and weirdly terrifying when you see someone coming at you all monstered out and, um, you know, committing to being a zombie or what have you. (laughs) So as these characters, I'm assuming in these, like in these setups, you have to kill and then you have to like be killed, right? What is that like? So sometimes you'll be doing it with motion capture where your whole body's going through the motion and you're taking this PVC pipe knife and you're stabbing repeatedly or shooting somebody or something. And other times they're going to do that all digitally and then you'll come into the studio later and do the voiceover and do various different vocal (laughs) recreations. What's a death knell that you've had to do? Oh, death knell? Oh, lots. So Angie in the game, the little bride doll character, she is 
ultimately, I mean, spoilers, but you all have had a year to play it. Um, she's ultimately taken out by a pair of scissors. The, the person playing the game, who's playing Ethan Winters, has to actually stab the doll in the face. And so there's a lot of like, ah, no, oh, my friends, what are you doing? You know, like, um, different things that happen. And sometimes... Oh my God, that was frightening. Right, if they don't stab in the right place or something, you might have like, <laughs> like running away sort of <laughs> sounds. Um, and then for my other character, for Evelyn, she was ultimately taken out. I mean, does anybody ever really die in these games? Because, I mean, we can always come back. She's taken out with an injection of e-necrotoxin. So there's a lot of... Of e-necrotoxin. <laughs> can you just tell our listeners who aren't familiar? So if you're unfamiliar with the Resident Evil universe, they have the Umbrella Corporation, which is, you know, dabbling in bio weapons and such. Uh, things never turn out well that way. I hope humans learn, but they just they just don't. And they create this little girl sort of weapon, <laughs> and she escapes from her handler and desperately wants a family because... That's what we want. We all want to belong and have a family. And so she kind of creates some via enslaving and monsterizing people, but whatever. And you have to take her out as the character with this special injection. And she's 12-ish at the time looking. So she's a lot of, want to be my daddy? Then he can die. That sounds like something my kids have said to me. Yeah, yeah. I think they might have been listening in. Sometimes you'll do a series of three or something. So they'll bring up what they have already animated on the screen, like ADR, essentially, for on-camera yeah. stuff. So they'll bring it up. ADR not actually standing for additional dialogue recording, which I originally thought. Can you tell our listeners, please, what ADR is? Um, I, I, I don't know. It's short for something else. Additional death rattles? Is that... Uh... Additional death... Oh, that's so good. I love that. <laughs> that's for you. That's exactly what it is. ADR is your additional mm -hmm. death rattle. Fitting. All right, folks, it's that time again for the segment... Let's Google This Shit! In the world of film and television, ADR stands for Automated Dialogue Replacement. It is the process of re-recording dialogue in a quieter, more controlled setting, typically at a recording studio. However, in my very thorough Google search, I did find that ADR can also stand for a myriad of things such as alternative dispute resolution, uh, adverse drug, drug reaction, reaction, a delightful recording of the Playing Dead podcast, or a death remembered, which is basically the theme of, okay, let's move on. The producer in the studio needs you to run through, so they're like, okay, uh, Paula, give me uh, three death noises, go. Is it written on a page, or they just expect you to, like, make them up? Different for every game, right? So if I'm doing, sure. like, Final Fantasy or something, they might, if they're in the early stages, you might be like, okay, you're just doing efforts here. So you're getting stabbed with a sword, and it's progressively harder stabs. So you might be like, ugh! you know, whatever, and go through these various efforts that they can then plug in wherever they want. But then if you're doing it to a game that's actually fitting animation that, you know, thousands of people have been working on in Japan for a year, they're going to bring up that footage, whatever phase it's at, and play it back so you can time it exactly. They might be capturing your facial movements with the dots in the camera, which now they don't even need the dots. That's amazing. Yeah. And they'll go through that from whatever various reactions they have already pre-animated, you'll be matching those. So it might be like, okay, three beeps, here they come, and I'm screaming. She's still screaming. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, you're going to go through the entire time that you need to. Or if she's, like, getting hit by something, you can react to that exact moment in their animation, which is pretty cool. And the last couple of years, they've had to innovate so much because, hi, there's a pandemic. So we were literally recording 
during the height of things because you could be kind of alone <laughs> with the other actor 30 feet away and we'd have like iPad robots rolling up and giving us direction from overseas. You've done some other games. You've done Final Fantasy. You've done Resident Evil. Red Dead 2. Red Dead 2. I remember when Red Dead Redemption came out because like everyone was becoming very obsessed with these open world games like Grand Theft Auto, which you also did, which I want to ask you about. Yeah. But there was a moment in our culture where it was like, oh, you can just open a game follow a story or not or instead of following a story open your tv up here kid go kill anyone rob anyone like commit every crime you could possibly imagine it's very westworld yeah very westworld how interesting <laughs> um i was talking to ben barnes about his time on westworld ben barnes is the man who killed me mm. on the punisher and so i got to confront oh, him it's a special bond yeah we have a very special bond but yeah it's funny that on westworld i think that was the sort of live action like fantasy of those kids who grew up on Red Dead Redemption or like I do want to live there I mean the uh, graphics are amazing now what they can do it's well like and you spoilers you cannot kill my character in that particular game you can follow her around and harass her and she'll say all sorts of things who do you play in Red Dead Redemption I'm a lady of the night and interestingly enough the outfits change like if you go back and find her later she might have lost weight or she might be in a totally different outfit it's wild and she's always kind of in the saloon somewhere so you can find her and then harass her if you want to follow her but she's not gonna she's not leave me alone what are you and you, we yeah what would you say i sidle up to the bar and i order a whiskey and then mm -hmm. you show up and what do you say uh howdy stranger or might be like oh what are you doing around town? You know, there's a whole thousands of different possible prompts that might come out. And somebody actually tape like all the different possible reactions and just like chase my character through town and send it to me. And I'm like, great for my video reel. Thanks. <laughs> wow. What I found really interesting and I hadn't predicted was how much fans really resonated with the villains. <laughs> like they fall in love with us and they made all sorts of fan stories about us. What you really saw was this need to belong and connect that came out of the fan community, which is beautiful and wonderful. And I encourage all fan fiction. Your fandom doesn't hurt someone else's fandom if you come up with an idea that you need a connection. But we just saw people really acting on that need to connect, on that need to ha belong and have a family and portray it through these, these characters, which was amazing and wild. <laughs> I think what people don't realize in a lot of these things, that even if you're playing gross, demented, psychopathic, whatever, you're still part of a community yeah. and everyone needs a community. Everyone needs <laughs> Everybody community. needs it. It's not unlike people who watch horror movies. It's not like people on uh, a leather mask and start chainsawing people. I mean, usually, yeah. <laughs> and then in Grand Theft Auto, who did you play? So in that one, I am a lady in a factory. I had a hairnet and you drive through and you're causing mayhem. Like she starts like, what are you doing in here? I'll call my manager. Like she's, she's angry and there's a lot of kids that they harass. And they're like, hey, mister, get back here. By the way, it's fascinating about your voices. You can do kids and crazy old lady. And it's a very quick turn. There's like almost no space between those two variations. Where in your voice do you go to change that? Sometimes you're way in the back of your throat or sometimes you're right in your front teeth, you know, or, or you know, kids are kind of just on the side of their mouth a lot of time. Uh, so it, it really just depends on the, if they have a drawing of the character, sometimes I'll mesh off that. A lot of times I'm just guessing. I'm just like, I don't know, I think they sound like this. It's different because you do have this wider range in animated world than you do on camera, right? Like I'm super mom slash weird neighbor 
or, you know, in animation, I might be like a pretzel and a princess and a goblin in the same day. When did you discover that you could do these things in your voice or was it just something that sort of like naturally came to you? I think my dad started reading comic books to me with various accents because I would get mad if I couldn't tell which character he was supposed to be. And he just went for it. And I, I just kind of always assumed like, oh, this is what we do when we're reading something. So I, I, I'm sure I scared a couple of teachers, you know, in elementary school being like, well, I'll be this character now. And they're like, mm, <laughs> this is Missouri. Let me warn you against doing any books on tape without reading the book first. I made that mistake. You guys don't do that. And I started reading it, read like all the way to the last chapter, almost done recording. And... <laughs> I say in this like lovely, whatever Southern, because it was like some sort of Civil War romance book, because of course, um, lovely Southern accent is this gentleman's writing away. But the description of the thing says, he said in his Northern Yankee something drawl. And I'm like, "Mm, shoot. It's like the most specific accent that you've never done. Right. And I'm like, I'm just going to leave that part of the book out, that little descriptor, and we're going to roll with what I did. So obviously you do acting beyond voiceover work. Have you died in live action stuff or like done violent sort of like horror stuff? Oh yeah. I met my husband when he was plotting my murder. Like you do on George Cameron Romero. So so it's George Romero's son's first film was called Stoughton Hill. And I super die. I die like a lot. Um, I get like hit in the head with a hammer and then skinned and uh, my head cut off and things and fed to pigs. There's no chance for a sequel to my character. And then my directorial debut, which, <laughs> fun plug, guys, you can actually watch it now. It's called Delicate State. It's available globally on demand now. Oh. Audience Trace Award winner at uh, Dances with Films. But it was shot over the course of my actual first pregnancy. And because it was the first time that I was really dealing with, like, oh, my gosh, like, I'm, I feel super mortal right now. I'm not guaranteed any outcome. Women and families throughout history have dealt with the fact that we don't know if we're getting through this. Yeah. Facing those very real fears in the face of, and this is 2015 when we shot it, uh... Uh, the fact that I didn't know what state the nation would be in. <laughs> so our characters experience a civil war breaking out in the U.S. during the course of our pregnancy and having to bring a child in the middle of that. Oh, my God. So it's a, a docu-fiction that I hope remains fiction. This is a feature. This is a feature. It's a feature film, yeah. So you can find it everywhere, iTunes, Amazon, all the places on demand. Delicate state. Mm. Amazing. Who else is in that with you? My husband. We are the leads in the entire crew. What is your husband's name? Charlie Bowden. What was your craziest death as a video game character? As a video game character? It's slightly different and a a weird skill set. But another part of voiceover and motion capture is called performance capture, which they already have the voice recorded and they already have the motion capture body recorded, but they forgot to capture the face expressions. So so sometimes I'm hired to just lip sync the other actor's words and get really expressive and match their body. And I got to do that for the game Evil Within 2, for the, the female character, Mara, and she morphs into a huge monster, which, granted, Evelyn also does in Resident Evil, so I'm like, it's <laughs> been there. But we had to match this monster morphing, and I'm like doing all the monster growls and faces to match the voiceover. And as you battle the playable character in all the various ways the playable character can play, and, and die that way with various melting. But did you have to like do it without voice? I would usually put a little bit of voice vocal out just to make sure I'm matching the timing. Yeah. But sometimes you don't, like, because you would just kill your vocal cords screaming all, all day. Right. But yeah, you're like, you know, like melting various ways or like screeching above them as you're flying or if you're a big blob. Oh my God. That was probably the most challenging. Like, all day today I died. Like, all day. Really weird ways. Is there a death that you've seen in, in the movies or TV that's kind of had an effect on you? I will say the ones that really first 
that still stuck with me, like, nightmare-wise, were the ones I saw as a kid, which I didn't see a lot of them. I remember initially seeing, like, the Wizard of Oz when the Wicked Witch melts, and I'm like, wait, was that acid? And Mom's like, no, it's water. And I'm like, water can do that. <laughs> you know, it was a weird thing. I'm like, hmm, but what if it was acid? Would that work on a person? And my mom's like, that's creepy, and you're young. Stop. Paula, <laughs> thank you for joining us, and it was super fun, and I hope someday I get to kill you or be killed by you. Oh, same. Thank you. And maybe one day we'll be in something together where we kill each other. Oh, one can hope. <laughs> and so, my friends... We gather here to mourn the death of Rufio, former leader of the Lost Boys. Cocky, charismatic, and extremely good-looking, Rufio died much too young. How young? Well, we may never know as he had been suspended in time as a 15-year-old boy for many, many years. He was a skilled swordsman, and while his weapon of choice wasn't the largest among the Lost Boys. He never let you forget that it's not the size of the sword that matters. It's the magic it makes. <clears throat> we also mourn the short-term death of Artax, a magnificent white horse and loyal sidekick to Atreyu. If Artax could talk, we imagine he would say such things as <laughs> which translates to, hey, I want to ride that dragon dog thing too, or I think I know a better way to get to Morla, the ancient one, that doesn't involve trampling through this disgusting swamp. Thankfully, Artax was resurrected when a human boy called out a new name for the childlike empress. As the reanimated horse galloped across the new Fantasia, he was most likely thinking, if I could talk, I would have been more than happy to have given her a new name and saved us all a hell of a lot of trouble. And finally, we pay tribute to the screams, the squeals, and the shrills of Paula Rhodes. Whether being stabbed with a pair of scissors, injected with e-necrotoxin, or run over by a rampant criminal, her voice will never cease to haunt you. Die! Even after the game is over. In our next episode, we get into some really strange things. I think what the Duffers were creating was a world where anyone could die. I just remember like walking onto that set, seeing the pool, seeing everything, and also realizing that this scene was gonna be like just me. Playing Dead is hosted by Michael Nathanson. Hey, that's me! Produced by Charlie Webster. Written and produced by Jill Marie Hoffman. Edited by Aaron Florence. Executive producers Charlie Webster and yours truly, Michael Nathanson. Special thanks to Kyle Epler and Stephen Sletton. Produced by Lionsgate Sound and Magic Scope. Lionsgate Sound, engineered by Pilgrim Media Group.